You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Okay, so to borrow from David Letterman a smidge, and I hope I don't need some sort of permission for what I'm about to say, but my next guest needs no introduction. A whole lot of you know David Lamott and his music. He has toured and is known internationally. But parallel with and woven into David's music has been and continues to be his commitment to dealing with conflict in the effort at peace building. David has a graduate degree and has been active in and has written books related to this work. David has graciously agreed to talk with us today about his life of faith, his work, and his music, introducing us to the projects that are the channels for his present energies. And of course, we will get to listen to some of his music. So welcome, David. Thank you for being with me today. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, dude. Well, won't we begin by letting you tell your own spiritual journey, and especially it is, as it has led you uh, to this unique and wonderful path that you are on. Well, I am uh, the son and grandson and brother of Presbyterian pastors, so that's, uh, I guess, any any narrative of my own spiritual journey has to include that fundamental context. Um, I grew up in Sarasota, Florida, at a at when my father was the pastor of uh, First Presbyterian Church there in Sarasota, and that was a really nourishing uh, community for me. I was really fortunate to be surrounded by people who were thinking deeply and wrestling and questioning and, and faith was not a simple thing for the folks around me. Um, and I think I was very much formed by that. My youth leaders were people who encouraged us to wrestle, you know, and, and didn't, it, it, it's interesting. I, um, I later had an experience of a youth program that, uh, pretty much handed out pastel pamphlets on Sunday mornings. And this, these pamphlets told a, a Bible story and then had questions in them and the answers were upside down on the back. Mm. Right. And, and I, and I was, I, I felt frankly insulted, you know, I mean, I, I kind of felt like, wow, this stuff is real and important and it matters. And the answers aren't easy. Please don't tell me that you have the answers and I'm just supposed to give them back. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. This stuff is hard. And so, um, uh, I'm, all that to say that I'm really grateful to have been uh, nourished by folks who were digging deep, and and that's a, a big part of my journey. I got involved in, um, of course, this was the the mid '80s. I was born in '68, so I grew up in the '70s and the '80s. By the time I got to high school, it was um, the the later days of the Cold War, and nuclear annihilation seemed to me to be a constant threat in my teens there. And as I began to dig into that a little bit, learn more about it, I started to learn about peacemaking efforts and, and the work that people were doing in the world to come up with better ways to address conflict. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding that a lot of folks have about peace work is that um, I think it's often understood as avoiding conflict or making nice or pretending it's not there, you know, um, calming down. And I think real peace work is, is anything but that. It's actually stepping toward conflict, but doing so in ways that are constructive rather than destructive. So it's about approaching conflict, not about running away from it. 
And that's not fun. I don't love conflict. But here were people who were doing this work so much better than what I was seeing in the newspapers. And I started to learn about mediation and, and conflict transformation work that was going on um, in the world. And I got really interested in that and more and more drawn to it. And the more I did, the more I started to encounter Quakers because Quakers have been on the forefront of peace work for a, a long time, along with Mennonites and brethren and other folks of other traditions. Um, and I just kind of got interested in this Quaker thing. And then we moved to Roanoke, Virginia, and my um, mom found herself in a women's group with a half dozen, six or eight women. And um, one of them was a Quaker woman named Susie Fetter, who was uh, an extraordinary person to me, made a really big impression on me in my late teens. And I asked mom, what, what is this Quaker thing about? What does that mean? And she said, well, you should talk to Susie about it. And so I asked Susie some questions and it just kind of kept popping up for me on all sides. And so as I learned more about Quaker thought and practice, I came to feel like this is what I've always believed. I just didn't know there was a group of people who were seeing the world this way. And so I got more and more involved in Quaker uh, tradition. But I, I want to say that that wasn't so much a rejection of my earlier path as it was another layering on. Um, it, it's really just another way to come at this stuff. And and I'm grateful for the wisdom of both of those traditions and many others, but I would consider those two to be my, my most formative um, traditions. So when people ask me what my faith tradition is, I tell them I'm a Quaker Tyrian. <laughs> yeah, we've got uh, it, within my uh, realm of friends and influence uh, a bunch of Baptist Catholics. <laughs> yes, right. Uh -huh. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Draw from the liturgical tradition that you know Baptists that are interested in liturgy and that you bet. Kind of thing. Yeah, but um, so there's a lot of silence. Uh, for you and your approach to peace, a lot of. I think there's a lot of silence um, in my approach to spirituality and in my approach to sanity. Uh, everybody wants a piece of our silence these days. Everybody would love to fill it with something. Yeah. And uh, I heard somebody say one time, take your time, because if you don't take your time, somebody else will. Right. <laughs> and, um, and I, I think it's that way with silence. There is such a gift in it, and it's sometimes a terrifying gift. I, the, the thing about silence is that when I am silent, when I seek to make space, the things I've been running from catch up with me. And that's hard, but it's also really healthy. Uh, so, yeah, there's so many gifts in silence. I'm really grateful for the Quaker tradition and what I've learned and continue to learn uh, from that tradition in regards to choosing silence, which is, I should say, something very different from quiet. Right. Quiet, quiet is the lack of sound, and silence is, is a choice. It's really a turning inward. It's an intentionality, regardless of what's going on around you. I've learned a lot by attending a Quaker meeting that's right on a train track. Every once in a while, a freight train comes barreling through our meeting, and and you're quickly reminded about the difference between quiet and silence. Well, and what I value about the Quaker uh, experience and tradition is that you're 
uh, it's not a, it's not a solitary silence, right? Uh, you're, you're, you're silencing community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a whole different kind of understanding. It really is. And it's powerful. Quakers speak about a gathered meeting when, when a meeting really has a power in it and, and you're all just sitting there quietly, but sometimes the spirit blows through there, you know, and you can feel it. It's a, it's a powerful thing. Well, how did the music come in for you? When did, when did that enter into the picture? So I'm the fourth of four kids. I have three older siblings and, um, there's a six year gap between me and my closest sibling and a 10 year gap between the farthest and myself. And so in my family, they call me group two. And, uh, <laughs> I grew up listening to all their music, so I'm kind of half a generation off in terms of my musical influences. I've, I grew up listening to a lot of the sort of 70s folk revival of James Taylor and Carole King and, uh, you know, all those folks, Cat Stevens and um, Don McLean, etc. And uh, and then my brother was listening to Southern rock, you know, so I was, I was hearing that too. And um, all that informed my own musical uh, proclivities, I guess, but I, I, I was, I was moved by these songs early on. I, I realized that these songs were saying something, you know, they were worth listening to the words mattered as well as just the general vibe you got from listening to them. And, um, and so I think it's natural that if you've been moved and touched by something, you want to pass that on. It's, it's natural to want to do that if it has mattered to you. And so I started playing guitar when I was about 15. I'd played violin as a small child, about seven or eight, and um, played violin for a few years. I discovered guitar. Guitars have frets on them, which makes them a lot easier than violin. And um, and it also they're, they're just so incredibly um, versatile. You can get so many different emotions out of an acoustic guitar, uh, not to mention throwing in electric guitars. And... Um, and so this was just a place where I found, uh, somehow I found a friend in a, in a guitar, you know, that I still do. And it's, um, it's been a beautiful time of life. <laughs> right. Exactly. This old guitar gave me my life, my living. Yeah. It's a, it's a powerful song that, that speaks my heart. Well, how did, I mean, like, um, did you approach music? Or did you approach, I guess, songwriting through music, or or were, did you have a proclivity to words before you got into music? Well, I grew up in a pretty wordy family, um, <laughs> you know, so I've I've always kind of loved words. But but really, the songs that that touched me most deeply as a young man were songs that were lyric based. You know, that the music was great, but the lyrics really mattered. I learned to listen closely to lyrics early on. And I, I've come to understand over the years that a lot of people really don't. They don't really listen to the words of songs much. Um, they can hear a song hundreds of times and never really have paid attention to the words. And I'm the opposite. I can't not listen to the words. So if I'm in a restaurant and there's music on, I'm going to have a hard time having a conversation with you because part of me is listening to the lyrics and I can't tune them out. Um, so it's always been an important part for me. I, I, uh, I, I guess songs for me, um, the songs that have been closest to my heart have generally been songs where both the music and the, the lyrics matter. 
So I, I have a hard time separating them. Well, how did like when you when you uh, compose a song? Uh, what's the kind of process for you? Do you do you find an idea uh, that you then uh, work back and forth with the music, or do you come up with a tune and then yeah. uh, think of some melody that, or think of some words that go with the melody? Well, I've been doing it for thirty plus years, so I've done it pretty much every way you can imagine. I've had times when I found something on the guitar and I thought what is this trying to say emotionally? You know, what, what does this sound mean? And um, found the story, found the words from that. But more often I have a lyrical idea and I sketch it out a little bit and I start to sing it. Often I write nowhere near the guitar. I, I write a lyrical idea and get started on it. And from there, um, after I sketch it out a little bit, I just start to sing the melody. I start to sing these words and see how they sound. Um, and then I go get the guitar and find how to accompany that melody on the guitar. That's generally how it goes. Lately, I've been, um, I've been uh, for the last couple of years, I've been writing a song a month, I've, at least. I've promised a song a month to my Patreon community, which has become really an important uh, community for me online. And so, um, I find myself often writing a song right at the end of the month because I have a deadline <laughs> and deadlines are very helpful for me because I've always got too many things going on. So, um, I have, I've learned some tricks. My friend, Jonathan Bird, who's a great North Carolina songwriter, um, put out a little video where he suggested a little songwriting tip. He said, if you need to write a song and you don't have anything, one thing you can do is take a song that you really love and write new words to it. And then once you've got your lyric, write new music to your lyric, Ooh. and then you've got a song. <laughs> and in recent months, I've actually done that a few times and I've come up with some songs that I really, really love. And they fall out in the only thing that's left from the original song is the structure of it, which is really, I think, a, a legitimate thing to share. You know, it's not that doesn't feel derivative to to um, write in someone else's structure. And so um it's been good because it does break me out of some standard kind of patterns that I go to. Well, it, it has your, has your interest in peace building, uh, in the motivating dimension. Um, so I believe that the function of art is to reflect what we see going on around us and sometimes to dream it forward, right? Sometimes to, to evoke, a better way, you know, and, and try to call that forward. Um, but mostly to reflect what's going on um, or what any artist sees going on around them. And sometimes when we can come back to our lives from a different angle, we understand it a little bit differently. Um, as a listener to music or an appreciator of any art form, that's really important to me. I love the perspective that I get from catching somebody else's view of what's going on. Um, so I don't write songs I very seldom write songs trying to convince somebody of something, right? Mostly I'm trying to reflect what I see in the hope that that's useful. So I don't want my art, I don't want my songwriting or poetry or book writing for that matter to be as much didactic trying to fill people with my ideas as to be evocative, trying to call forth the places where, where we see each other. 
you know. Um, so I, I have written songs about uh, that are explicitly about peace, and I've covered some songs that are about peace issues. Um, the the classic song of peace that's in a lot of hymnals to the tune that Sibelius wrote uh, by Lloyd Stone. I recorded that song on two different albums, actually. And I've had several songs, actually, in my very second album. I'm, I'm currently working on my 13th album, believe it or not. And my my second album had a song on it called Whites of Their Eyes, which was my first, I think that was my first song that was explicitly about peace issues. And, um, and it's just trying to push back against the dehumanization that's inherent in war, um, in, in organized violence, right? There's a, there's a, a dehumanization that's necessary to allow ourselves to hurt each other. And, um, and so that's, that was a troubling thing to me as a young man. I wrote this song called whites of their eyes and the chorus says, don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes. Don't fire till you hear the truth through the lies. Don't fire till you know the love in the heart of a mother's son until then, please don't fire your gun. Right? So that was a, a fairly activist kind of song for me to write as a young man. Um, but I find that people are more often, my, my goal is not so much to convince other people to think like me as that we all see each other and are therefore transformed. Okay. That's wonderful insight. Uh, and I like the way that you, um, you, you blend the metaphor of music uh, with the, the dimensions of, of peace building and peace work uh, that you, that you talked about in your Ted talk. And I won't ask you to repeat that because we can sure. add a link and let people listen to that, which they should. Uh, but um, do you do you ever think about your music uh, in like if we talk, we're going to be talking about uh, a couple of your songs in a little bit, uh, but using those categories to talk about your music? Uh, what's the creative dimension? What's the uh, harmonic dimension what's the conflict dimension uh of the songs that you compose absolutely i think the craft of art is always about managing tension and release tension and comfort and so it's interesting when you look at the classic uh form of a pop song historically there's a couple verses a couple choruses not in that order generally verse chorus verse chorus and then there's a bridge which is a departure. And then there's another chorus often, right? Or maybe another verse at the end. And so as you go through, you know, the chorus is the part that repeats both the music and the lyric. So that's the part where there's the most comfort because you've heard it a couple of times before, you know, it's coming, right? So it's a landing place. The verses have the same music each time generally, but different words. So there's a little more tension there. And that's kind of buffered by choruses. And then there's the bridge, which generally has different uh, words and different music. And so that's where the most tension is. And you know where that falls in the song? It falls at about two thirds of the way through. It's pretty much um, the, the golden mean, right? We, we've got this long tradition of, of in, in architecture and in visual art and in sculpture where we know where the tension point goes in a pleasing photograph you'll notice that the eyes of the person are very often at the intersections of those golden mean lines about two-thirds of the way up or down or left or right 
And that's a natural thing that appeals to our physiology, I believe. We, we find that pleasing because it makes sense to our bodies in a really fundamental way. So I'm always thinking about where you surprise people and where you comfort them. And different people have different tolerances for different kinds of tension. So if you enjoy a lot of musical tension, if you enjoy harmonic tension, if you enjoy rhythmic tension, then you probably love free jazz, right? Which kind of states a theme and then sees how far it can possibly get away from that theme and still see it around the corner just a little bit, right? Just glimpse it. And, and I love that kind of music, but not everybody does. To some people, it just makes them crazy. It's way too much tension. And then you've got like on the other, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, a song like traditional folk songs that have 17 verses and the music never goes anywhere, right? The, the tension is all in the story. It's all in the words. And people who love that kind of music don't really need any musical tension. The, the tension is in the story. But it's always there. You listen to a song like the Edmund Fitzgerald, that song just it's the same music over and over and over again. Oh, here's a solo. That's the same music, too. Right. The chords just go around and around and around and around. But it's a really compelling story about the shipwreck. And it's uh, it's a very human uh, representation of, of tension that that works in that context, if that's what you love. And not everybody does. Some people, a song like that drives them completely crazy because it's not there isn't enough tension there so it just feels boring so my job is not to try to please everybody but to make music that feels authentic to me and offer it to people for whom it it relates well let's let's talk then about your your parallel path of your of your conflict work and your and your peace work uh and and you uh uh kind of give you a little background on, on my, my own what came to my mind when we talked before um about your let's be neighbors yeah uh, project um when i was in seminary uh, i took a class with uh, dr larry mcswain who was uh, uh the sociologist uh that was his discipline and uh and 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 one of the things that i took away from that class um was how much something physical um, creates a change in something cultural. Hmm. And the classic um, example is the railroad track. Uh, that that a, a railroad uh, comes through town, they build a railroad track, and that creates a boundary hmm. uh, that often creates culture, different cultures on which side of the track that you're on. And so, you know, the phrase that, you know, I'm a kid from the other side of the track. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that seems to relate to, uh, what you're done in this, let's be neighbors thing. Uh, to me, uh, where you're talking about the, the building of sidewalks in black mountain here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. talk about that journey. Talk about that story. Sure. So, um, I have lived, I, I, my family moved a little over a year ago in order to move my father-in-law in with me because, in with us, because he's in failing health. And we're glad to have the chance to do that. We were able to buy a slightly bigger house. But for the decades previous, uh, about 25 years before that, I lived in the same little house, 875 square feet on uh, 
the corner of Cragmont Road and Cragmont Road, where it takes a sharp right turn. I live, my little house sits right inside that turn and um, lived there for 25 years or so. And, and over the time that I was there, I watched the neighborhood shift a fair amount. One of the wild things that happened was that the town came in and put a sidewalk in after I had lived there for about a decade. And that really shifted the, the uh, neighborhood because it's a fairly busy road. And so before the sidewalks are there, very few people walked on that road. And it was terribly dangerous to do so. So mostly people pulled in their driveways and maybe waved to the neighbor on either side, but didn't generally know people very well. When the sidewalk went in, everything changed in exactly the way you're talking about, David, in terms of the, the railroad tracks, except in the opposite direction. It, it forged connections rather than severing them. And so uh, people started walking their dogs and pushing their strollers and, and started chatting with each other and just walking a couple of blocks down to the little pond we like to walk around. And, uh, and so folks began to get to know each other better. That's a beautiful thing, forging the fabric of community so that when things do go wrong, you know the people around you and you can talk to folks. And not only you can uh, not only can you borrow a cup of sugar, but you can also let people know if there's something dangerous happening in the neighborhood or, you know, come to each other's aid if something goes wrong. So that was a beautiful thing to see happen in my own little neighborhood. When the election of 2016 happened, I felt like the town had come in and torn out all the sidewalks. Everybody seemed scared to talk to each other. And I was a little scared to talk to people because some of us were grieving and terrified around where the country was going. Others were elated and hopeful, right? And if you spoke your grief to someone who was elated, it threw up an immediate wall and and folks could get quite offended and uh, think less of each other. And, um, and that's extremely difficult because this is not a, a preference for a color of paint, right? This is a very serious difference of opinion that has impact for people's lives. People live and die by the government that's elected, um, by the administration that's elected in any given election. That said, our only hope of finding our way forward together is to find our way forward together. <laughs> and in order to do that, we got to know each other. And I was just heartbroken that it felt like suddenly in a fairly short period of time, we had gotten, there had been such a trustectomy performed on my community, right? It, the trust had just been removed. And that made me really sad. And I wanted my neighbors to know that if their car battery's dead, they can knock on my door no matter who they voted for, right? Because I really believe that relationship predates transformation. We don't, we, we very seldom reject each other into making more compassionate decisions, right? It, we, we're transformed in relationship. The relationship comes first and then the transformation. And where there's trust, we can talk about hard things. So the need to reach out to each other across these lines is not because we're making nice. Making peace is not making nice. It's not because the, the differences don't matter. It's because they do. And our only hope of making progress on this is to know each other and care about each other and understand a little better 
where other folks are coming from. So I was talking with my wife and son one night and just feeling super sad about what was going on in, in the nation and in my own little neighborhood. And I said, I just want to, I just want to hang a sign on the house that says, look, you're our neighbors. You know, we're here. We're going to try to be here for you no matter who you voted for. I just want to put that sign on my house. And then it occurred to me once those uh, words had fallen out of my mouth that I know how to have signs made. I've done that before. Right. And I thought, well, Hey, I guess I could put a sign on my house. And if I did, what would it say? And I talked to Deanna about it a little bit. And then we talked to our son, Mason, who at that point, let's see, 2016, he was um, seven, I guess. And so it's his house too. We wanted to run it past him, but we sort of settled on some wording and I ran it past him. He was not sure about this at first, um, but we talked about it and he decided it was a good idea. And so on Christmas Eve of 2016, uh, Mason and I hung this big sign on the front of my house, which, as I said, is on a very busy corner. And the sign's about three feet wide and about eight feet tall. It's a big old sign. And it says, um, you are our neighbors, no matter who you vote for, your skin color, where you're from, your faith, or who you love, we will try to be here for you. That's what community means. Let's be neighbors. So it doesn't say these things don't matter. It says, we will try to be here for you, right? And we honor the, the beautiful diversity of humanity and the different perspectives because different lives do teach different lessons, right? So what I want to say to people is not, hey, everything's cool, but rather, because everything isn't cool, we need to know each other. One of the... Um things I want to kind of go back to is something that you mentioned earlier and that you mentioned also in your, in your Ted talk, uh, is that you're not trying to eliminate conflict, but you're trying to be productive rather than destructive with conflict. Right. Um, how do you, how do you understand what that means? What productive means and particularly in relationship to, to what you did with, uh, your sign? Well, I, I guess that's a that's a very long conversation and we could have that one for a very long time. Um, but in general, I think we need to start with some basic respect and with curiosity and a and a you know the the, the classic prayer that um, to seek to be to understand more than to be understood, right is is step one. Um, but also the fundamental understanding that that the goal isn't necessarily to convince each other, right? Sometimes that is the goal. We're having an election, whatever. You'd like to see things go differently. But uh, very often, that's really not even on the table, right? And so the goal can be, it can be a win, even if you don't convince each other. It can be a win to rehumanize each other, right? We've got a much better chance of finding our way forward if we can dis disagree with some compassion and with some respect. So um, I guess those are fundamental uh, prerequisites for, for healthy conflict work. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's hard work though. There's a lot to it. Well, what has been, um, your experience, um, with, after you put the sign up, kind of what happened? Um, yeah, it's been very interesting. I've, I've had lots and lots of comments over the years. Um, 
where folks had stopped. Sometimes people come and knock on the door and want to know more about it and chat for a while. And that's lovely um, because there is a sidewalk there. Often people will come by and, uh, and take pictures. I've had folks pull in the driveway to take pictures and such. And I often will try to strike up a conversation where I can. I had some folks tell me that they had moved to the area because they drove through the neighborhood and saw the sign. Ooh. And, and then over time, um, because folks were asking me about it, I started uh, sharing the art around so people could make their own signs. And then people had uh, curiosity about whether they could have a yard sign version of it um, that was a little smaller and you could stick it in the yard. And so I created this art and created a website. And um, it's important to me that people understand that this isn't a money-making thing for me. I I, I really want this message to go out. It's it has more of a sense of a sense of mission about it to me. So, but there were folks who didn't know how to download the art and print their own signs and such. So they just said, "Hey, can you make one and I'll just buy it from you?" So now folks can buy the signs on the website in various sizes. Um, the most common one is a two by six version, and then there's um, yard signs as well. But but there's still to this day um, an option to download the art and print your own. And pay what you want and that can include zero and people do that sometimes and i'm happy to see the message getting out whether or not they want to chip in so uh these are now hanging all across the country um there's a 20 foot tall one in springfield illinois on abraham lincoln's church um i've i've run across them in places i didn't know they were driving through rural texas and i i see one on the side of a church or um the side of a house there are quite a few in my own little town um there's one yeah, i've seen them i've seen them here yeah so um yeah it's 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 been a beautiful thing i think and then of course there are people who push back as well who um have not uh gotten the message that i was trying to put out there that understand this as making nice rather than making peace and i um i love when i get a chance to have conversations with folks about that um, because I think we can deepen the understanding um, often when I get that chance. Had an activist reach out to me a couple of months ago who was in dialogue with her community and uh, folks in her community wanted to hang one of the signs up and she was really uncomfortable with it. And, and so I was so grateful that she reached out to me to have a conversation. We talked for about an hour and um, I don't know that she was convinced to see it the way I see it, but I was really grateful. I, I think we both felt good about the conversation and, and had good things to think about walking away from it. Well, you've been also um, active in a, in a thing called Faith for Justice. Yeah, I just got off a call, um, popped into a call just a few minutes ago with those folks. Um, that's a really beautiful group uh, in, based in Asheville, but it's, um, they have resources that are available nationally. Um, it's run by a woman named Tammy Forte Logan, who is a longtime activist and a, a former pastor. And Tammy uh, is has been working on anti-racism and equity issues uh, for many years. And this group is made up of a lot of clergy of uh, various faith traditions, and um, and then some lay people who are heavily involved in faith traditions that uh, are trying to commit to working on issues of equity and anti-racism internally uh, as individuals 
internally within our own communities, especially faith communities, and externally in the world in general. And so um, we've been involved in various things. Our, our Asheville City Council was uh, circulating sort of through back channels recently a, a proposal to uh, possibly regulate the distribution of food in public parks, um, basically regulated out of existence right. the way I read it. And um, they wanted to, it, it seems to me that their goal was to ban it without saying they were banning it. So um, we got pretty engaged pretty quickly under Tammy's leadership and uh, that one's dead in the water. So we're chalking up a, a small win, uh, though there's a long way to go on, on those issues. Of course, that, that work is never done. That's good. Yeah. Cause I, I, I know about that as well. And that, that that's disturbed me because uh, Amy Cantrell uh, has been someone that I've known and talked with for a long time and uh, been involved Amy, with. And, and I know Amy's an extraordinary mentor to many of us. She's an extraordinary leader in this community. And, and I talked with her a few days ago and I told her in the context of that conversation that she reminds me um, constantly what faithfulness looks like. Well, you have a uh, new album coming out, you said. I do, and I'm so excited <laughs> and, and a little trepidatious. I really hope uh, folks will enjoy it. It's uh, it's uh, just to start with my own critique of my own record. Um, it's pretty wildly eclectic, and uh, I think I, I, I'm hopeful that it will make sense to people because there are a lot of different production approaches and sounds on the record. We really tried to listen to each album, each song individually and give it what it was asking for. And so um, we're in the process. Why is it called Still? Why is it called Still? Yeah. So, yeah. So <laughs> the album is <laughs> right. The album is called Still. And um, that's an interesting word, isn't it? it? You can interpret it a lot of different ways, right? So one is not moving. And this, this pandemic time in particular has been a time where I've come off the road for one of the very few periods of time in my adulthood that I wasn't touring really hard. So I've spent a couple of years with my family here, and that's been a real gift in some ways, and it's been a struggle in others. Um, and so I want to name that stillness. There's also, uh, you know, I'm in my 50s now, and I'm still a professional musician. So there's, hey, you're still at this, right? After all these years. <laughs> and then, and then of course, um, you know, a still is where you make liquor. And what that is, is a process of... <laughs> I hadn't thought about that one. <laughs> well, it's a process of distillation, right? It's, it's yeah. taking the, the essence of the thing. And I think songwriting is that, right? You're trying to in a few words, in a few notes, in a short period of time, communicate something large. In, in the way of poetry or many other art forms, you're trying to gesture towards something that doesn't fit in the boundaries of the thing you're creating, right? So, so I think to distill these little songs about big things into little moments of music is part of the work of, the, of, of a songwriter. So, um, so it has a whole lot of different meanings for sure. And, and, and people have commented, including the graphic designer who's working on putting the album art together right now. Her name is Sarah Rudisil. And Sarah um, said, you know, this is a very kinetic painting that you've got on the cover of this album for an album called Still. And I said, exactly. <laughs> right. We're just going to soak in that irony and, and um, see how that feels. So 
um yeah it's a it's a fun project it's also my first time um, on my 13th album here making a record on vinyl and i'm really excited to make an lp for the first time in my life i oh yeah i started i put out my first album in 1991 so i was kind of right in the early days of cds um when i started making music professionally and i never did put out an album i was on the waning days of, of vinyl and so it's fun that it's come around again and i get to have an album which is of course what i grew up listening to well you've you've been gracious enough to to share uh, a song uh with us uh coming alive uh so let's let, let's listen to that great in summer no idea what's in the ground bearing dogwood in the front yard I wasn't sure if it was gone then about the first of April I saw what was going on that we chose but we hid out in our houses till the medicine arrived now the buds have turned to blossom stepping to the other side Coming alive 
It's a wonderful song and a beautiful song. Thank you. Um, uh, but I noticed that it um, uh, does what kind of like the, the title of your album does is that it takes uh, a metaphor of coming alive and applies it to different contexts. Uh, kind of talk a little bit about that. Uh, I love a good metaphor. Mm. <laughs> I really do. And it's, it's actually a, a very literally true story. Um, I, I will take license uh, sometimes in a song to, to tell truth, even if it's not factual. But um, in this case, it's actually factual. When we moved into this house, we moved in the winter. And, and there was this dogwood, still is, in the front yard that I feared was dead. I love dogwoods. And, and, I, and this dogwood had no sign of life in it that I could see. And it was such a beautiful and restorative thing in the spring when that dogwood started to come alive. And in this period of, of the pandemic, that's been so hard on so many of our spirits, it, it did have a, a resonance of hope to watch that tree bloom. And, um, and that left me thinking about, of course, the pandemic and the moment that we were in and, um, it also left me, uh, of course, thinking about resurrection and um, all those things are, are subtly sprinkled into the song. I wrote the song in that brief period of time last summer when we all thought the pandemic might be ending. Um, right. <laughs> and I, was, I was kind of feeling hopeful and, and seeing the end of this thing, I thought. And as it turned out, um, that was not yet to be. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we might be approaching that period again. So it's interesting to have the album coming out now. I wrote the song then, and, and hopefully it will speak to this moment when people can hear it uh, on the record in May. How much of your, how much of your music, because this song has a story dimension to it. And so how much of, how much of your music would you say are kind of story songs? So it's all about stories. <laughs> some of the stories are more abstract than others. Um, some of the stories, I, I, what I want to do with a song is, is draw a vivid picture for people and give them a space to inhabit and to explore. Again, I'm, it's not that I need everybody to see the world like I see it, but I'm hopeful that painting the picture of what I'm seeing can be useful in helping folks navigate their own journeys, right? That's what music has done for me as a listener and continues to do. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I do love a good story. That's definitely at the heart of it. Well, how do you, how do you think about orchestrating? Because I, you know, I love, I love strings and, and, and cello, uh, you know, and, 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 and this is not just acoustic guitar. This is kind right. of, you know, right. so how do you think about how you do that? 
Yeah, Stephanie Winters plays the cello on this record, and I just adore working with her. She's such a brilliant artist, and uh, we've worked together for years. Anytime I need cello, she's always kind of my first pick. And um, she's currently living in Denmark, but she happened to be in the U.S. a couple months ago uh, for a little while, and she flew down to spend a few days in the studio with us and played on several of the songs on the record. And this song just kind of called for that resonance, that warmth of of a cello and and she's the best to do it um although there are many there's many a cellist that i really adore um stephanie i actually made a record together called change a few years back that is a cello feature album that was it was really it should have had both of our names on it really it was a duo album but thinking about production um and orchestration is is always a challenge I am privileged to get to work with Chris Rosser on this album as a co-producer and the two of us sit and we think it out. You know, we listen to the songs together and we think, what is this song asking for? And, um, and depending on what it is, you know, we, we try to imagine it as beautifully or powerfully or, or funky or whatever it is we're looking for on that song. And then we try to think about, you know, what sounds not, not only what instruments, but what approaches to the instrument we're looking for. And then we try to think of the musicians who play that way and, and bring in the best people we can. I've actually got five different bass players playing on this album because the different songs called for different approaches and bass players are no more interchangeable than singer songwriters. You know, there's, there's a big difference between me and Jewel and James Taylor and uh, uh, Tracy Chapman, you know, you can go on and on and on. Um, and all those, by the way, <laughs> yeah, I love all those too. Sure, but um, but they're different, right? And you would you would call in a different artist to do a different thing. And so I've I've actually got two of my very favorite bass players of all time, legendary bass players on this record. In addition to three other excellent bass players who aren't quite as famous. Um, so it's really been a joy to get to work with some of my heroes on this record. One of the ways that you have integrated your music and your uh, interest in peace building has been with Abraham Jam. Yeah. Um, and that has been a marvelous thing. Uh, talk about, I guess, how did you come to a sense of pluralism in your own faith that opened that up? Huh. That's a good question, David. I, I think, um, I think honestly, every significant transformation in my whole life, not just that one has come from personal relationship with people who helped me to see things differently because I experienced them. Right. And as I have done a lot of travel around the world, I've been extraordinarily privileged to get to travel for many years as a pretty much broke folk singer, but I got to see the whole world, right? There is enough work to get me there. And, and so, um, as I have met people over the years, I have met some very godly people who do not share my faith. And it challenged the, the boundaries of my childhood faith that said, this is, you know, the only way like this, you know, your job is to share your truth with everybody else and hope that you can uh, convince them of it. And that, just wasn't big enough to hold God as I was encountering God um, and as my life went on. So I, I 
love, I don't always see eye to eye with Paul, but I, I do love where the Bible says, uh, you know, where, where love is, God is. And that has been my experience. So given that mystery is at the heart of my theology, given that I, I think it's fundamental to my theology to be constantly reminded um, and constantly remember that I'm not God. I don't have complete understanding. I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm wrestling and, and trying to figure it out and seeking. And because of that, um, there are things that I deeply believe, but I always have to approach spiritual conversations with profound humility. You just have to, because otherwise I'm confusing myself with God. I'm limiting God to say, God can't work over there in that way. No, right? I just, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, theologically, I think I need to walk humbly. And, and so that allows me the beautiful gift of receiving the gifts of other people's spirituality and, and perspective and wisdom that are rooted in other traditions than my own. Well, the song that you've uh, been gracious to share with us is uh, Braided Prayer. And um, uh, what just a, a, an amazing, beautiful piece. And what came to my mind um, in listening to it um, of course, the, again, the, 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 the extended metaphor that you use and the idea of braiding, uh, because as a pastor, you know, I often marry people and, 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 and occasionally there'll be someone who in the unity, uh, part of a ceremony, if they want to include that, include a, a kind of a braiding of, of two families coming together and also mm -hmm. with God and, and, and I perceived that, but I also had remembered, uh, you know, there have been several, um, popular books uh, about somebody having a near-death experience and seeing heaven, experiencing heaven. Uh, and, and in one of those, I had, I had overheard, remembered uh, uh, some conversation about it where they talked about that while they were there, they heard all this music going on in heaven. And even though it was of different styles and different varieties, somehow it all marvelously was harmonic and it all kind of came together. Uh, and, and that's what this song does to, for me is that you've got these three voices singing in their own faith, uh, that bring this, this harmony together. Uh, so talk about that song and how that, how y'all came with that. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, reminiscent of Pentecost, isn't it? It's, uh, it's fascinating, yeah. to, right? Yes, it is. Um, so the way this came to be is that we were in the studio one day and Billy and Dawood were kind of hanging out and they were talking about fundamental prayers of their traditions. And Billy was speaking of the Shema, which has, a, there's a traditional way to sing the Shema. And Billy being the wildly creative artist that he is, always tweaks things that are out there and makes them his own. So um, Billy has a not only a beautiful way of singing the Shema, uh, reciting the Shema, but also um, has a, a really lovely translation of his own that I treasure. Um, the Shema being the fundamental prayer of Judaism, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, it goes on from there. But um, Billy and Dawood were talking about the similarities between 
the Shema and the, the Fatiha, which is the Muslim call to prayer that is um, recited from the parapets of mosques around the world. And, um, and they started sort of singing those back and forth. And, and they, and Billy said, as I recall, I think Billy had the idea to say, let's try to sing them at the same time. And the two of them started singing these prayer, reciting these prayers, uh, in Muslim tradition, you don't sing the prayer, you actually recite it, but it sounds to our Western ears like song. Um, and so they started doing this together and what happened was just exquisite. It was so magical and powerful and beautiful. And we were all sort of stunned into silence as they did this, um, just kind of hanging out, not, not on the mics and such. And so as we thought about that a bit, we thought, okay, well, how do we braid the third strand in? What, what would I bring to that? And, uh, we considered it uh, very carefully. We had some resistance to the idea of my singing in English, though that's my native language, because we didn't want people to misunderstand and think that this was a translation, that they were uh, that we were all singing the same thing, because of course we're not. And we finally got to the idea of my singing in Spanish, which I, I speak Spanish decently because I've been working in Guatemala for uh, 18 years now. And so, um, I, I sing the Lord's prayer in, uh, in Spanish. And that's, that's been a, it, it is quite powerful for us. I mean, very often my hairs all stand up on my arms when we sing this song together. And that is, um, an extraordinarily beautiful moment. One of the things I, I always try to pay attention when my hairs stand up on my arms, because it's one of the things you can't fake right? <laughs> and I generally believe the spirit is drawing nigh when my little hairs stand up on my arms. So that happens often when we sing this song together live. Well, let's listen to that. Shema
Well, it is an amazing song. Uh, and to it, I add my own uh, amen. Hmm. So thank you all for that. Thank you, brother. It's uh, really a joy, as I said, to, to sing it every time. And it uh, it's funny, I don't really enjoy listening to my own albums much. It's a, just a little too self-absorbed and I'm way too critical. But I do enjoy listening to that. What a goodness. What a what a beautiful uh, experience to have. And what an honor to be a part of it, to stand in that in that little triangle. One of the things we talk about a lot as a band is the idea that harmony can be even stronger than unity. And I think this is a fundamental idea for peacemaking. It's not about convincing each other to see things the same way. It's about finding a way forward in the presence of the beautiful diversity that is creation, right? So, so harmony, where we're singing different notes that are beautiful together, can be even stronger than unity, where we're all singing the same note. And I, I, that's a wonderful uh, image uh, that I, that I, I agree with and concur with exactly. I think that's, that, that speaks it uh, very well. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for the work that you have done. Uh, thank you for the work you're still doing. Uh, thank you for your generosity, uh, both of time and of sharing uh, your music with us today. So thank you for being with me. Such a pleasure, David. I look forward to the next time our paths cross. Thank you. All right. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music used for the intro and outro of this episode is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. And of course, David Lamont's music played in this interview is also used by permission. If you go to my website, practicing-gospel.blubrry.net, you will find a link to David's website where you can have access to all of David's music, all of his books, and his other materials. In addition, there will be a link to the Let's Be Neighbors website where you can have access to the sign that David created. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website, at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.